Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome back to the waiting room revolution. We are very excited to have our friend and colleague on today, Dr. Erin Gallagher. She's an assistant professor at McMaster University, but what makes Erin very unique is that she trained as a palliative care specialist, but works as a family doctor. And so she knows what it's like to treat patients at the beginning, middle, and end of a journey. And she knows the secrets of how to provide a better illness experience all the way through. And so to kick things off, I know you support our mission to empower patients and family members. I'd love to hear what has your reaction been to our podcast so far? Um, so the reaction to the podcast was nothing but immensely positive. Um, and it's not just because I love the people who do it and have tons of faith in the knowledge and the skills that they're they're selling. Um, it is just so relevant and so practical to what we do as family physicians every day and some of the upstream work that we do for sure. But it is also completely relevant and practical to a lot of the consultative work that I do and wish that this stuff had happened, right, around illness understanding and understanding the trajectory of where this will go, Um, you know, knowing that people's coping mechanisms are going to have a very strong influence on how they deal with their journey, you know, you, you hit on such key points that, you know, I think if our patients were prepared with much sooner in the trajectory, um, it would be better for everybody. You know, the patients and the families first and foremost, but us caring for them and who, you know, I think there's a lot of moral injury in this type of care, wishing we could do more, especially when our patients are wrapped up in a system that is so siloed and, you know, it's, it's very rare to see it being very well integrated. Um, So if we could do more of this, I I think that would be fantastic. I also love that you guys incorporate guests on your podcast. So it's not just, you know, here are, here's the language, right? And, and I think that the, the, the practitioners or the clinicians that are listening to these podcasts, I think you guys are giving them the language to use. I don't think it's just the family members. I really don't. I can't wait to hear you walk us through a typical scenario where you meet someone and they've just been diagnosed with a progressive life-limiting illness and what you do from your end. Like, how do you change the way you care for someone once you know that they have a progressive life-limiting illness? Mm-hmm. So, you know, full disclosure, I've been in practice as a family physician for probably four to five years now. So I can't think of, you know, when it comes to chronic illness, I can't think of somebody that I've diagnosed and taken, you know, all the way to the end. I've definitely inherited a number of patients that, you know, were at various stages of diseases. And of course, we've caught patients, you know, very late in like a cancer disease, for example. So I've had the whole spectrum, and I think I've been able to apply an upstream approach at various points. The first part, I mean, if I'm lucky enough, I, you know, I use that 
term loosely, if I'm lucky enough to be the one diagnosing the patient, right? So really, truly upstream. Um, first and foremost, it's about illness understanding, right? So, and, you know, well beyond the pathophysiology, you know, in that first encounter, I'm not going to be talking to a patient around, you know, this is COPD, and did you know it's going to get worse? And, you know, drawing out those trajectories, that doesn't happen on visit one, right? We we try to incorporate strategies to improve their symptoms, to make sure that they actually know what the disease is as it applies to them right now. But planting the seeds very early that, you know, they've been diagnosed with something significant and it's going to require multiple appointments over time with me to make sure that we get a handle on this and that we're on the same page and that they continue to understand where they're at, that I can help them with any symptoms that they're experiencing and that I can help them plan for their future with this disease. I think those are those are the the key concepts that you have to plant early with your patients. And then it's a matter of consistent follow-up. So depending on the illness and depending on, you know, how rapidly it is progressing, you know, there's the difference between something like a, a heart failure that could go on for many years and somebody that's been diagnosed with a stage four cancer. Obviously, you're going to gauge your follow-up according to the rate of their decline. And, mm-hmm. and more serious conversations are going to have to happen sooner upstream, obviously, when uh, you've got somebody who's declining more rapidly. And it's really just about sprinkling in these conversations. I mean, I think as family docs, we know how important it is to set the agenda at the beginning of the appointment, because most of us only have, you know, 10 to 15 to 30 minutes with our patients in any one encounter. It doesn't mean that, you know, crises don't happen and we, of course, keep our doors open to these people for longer than the 10 minutes. You know, that's a part of the work that we do, too. But agenda setting and making sure that you're addressing these things and and the patient's agenda as well in each setting goes a long way. Now, what if the patients and families don't come with their own agenda? And what if every time they show up, they're looking to you to help guide them. When do you begin to start introducing, or like you said, sprinkling in, um, you know, not just hoping for the best and let's get over things that are happening today and make sure you're comfortable and your symptoms are okay. And at the same time, start planning and thinking about the future. At what point do you, so if someone's not asking you that stuff, how do you introduce it and when? Yeah, I think, you know, key points of starting to introduce this stuff is when you see an illness interfering with somebody's function and quality of life. Uh, And, you know, there are various steps in which that occurs. And everybody has fears and perceptions around how and why they're changing. You know, it's, it's one of probably my biggest bang for buck questions is, have you noticed a change in yourself? in the last little while, you know, what has that change been? And what do you think is happening? And you'd be surprised at how many patients actually have some insight into that. We always feel that we have to deliver the bad news, right? And we're always worried about having the right words and, you know, not scaring anybody away or being the doom and gloom. But it's quite often that, you know, if patients, if you open up the space for them to talk about what they think is happening, and what their fears are, 
and how this illness might be interfering with their function and the things that they enjoy in life. There are a lot of opportunities and ways in to start these conversations. Uh, Many uh, physicians have told us that they don't know when to start the conversation. Mm -hmm. They feel like they um, could learn the skill, but they don't know when to introduce it. And sometimes I think that they feel like it has to be so formal, like they bring out a tool, um, you know, step one, step two, step three. And, and they, then they ask, okay, when do I introduce the tool as the doctor? And it sounds like what you do is much more natural. You're not using a tool, are you, Erin? No, I'm, I'm, Asking a patient to reflect on what their current quality of life is and if there are ways that we can help to improve it. Um, and I think that that is what we should all be doing in medicine. Um, and it is, it, it is a natural conversation. There's nothing wrong with bringing out a tool, right? Especially if you can explain why you're doing it. Um, you know, and the patient understands the context and what your intentions are. And we talk to our learners about this all the time. You know, mm-hmm. we have that serious illness conversation guide that they use. And, you know, if they can explain to the patient why they're using it, I, we know that that's very well received, especially as mm-hmm. they try to practice having these conversations. But, you know, I think everybody is at a different point in their willingness throughout their journey to hear some of the difficult things. Um, but if we can frame it as, you know, this is about you and helping you live the best that you can, you know, we don't even have to call it advanced care planning, right? Because at the end of the day, that's, that's what we're doing is we're helping people live well. Um, and people, all people have concerns around their function. And that's not just physical function, it's their emotional function, their spiritual function, um, and, and fears about what's to come, whether you're sick or not, you know, we kind of do or should be doing <laughs> advanced care planning and, and goals of care discussions every single day. It's not always in the context of progressive life limiting illness, right? That these conversations mm-hmm. happen. So I guess trying to get clinicians to see that they're, they're doing this work pretty often anyways, Um, But maybe reframing it, uh, especially in a progressive life-limiting illness, in a way where, you know, we're really just trying to help you live well, I think is, it makes it easier for everybody to have the conversation. We often hear one of the barriers to doing this work is that it's the patients and families themselves that don't really want any of the bad news. And they don't want to talk about the future or in any way break that sacred trust that has been formed between patient and physician. Has that been your experience? Definitely not so much. I I find that far majority of patients and families want the information that we can provide without question. I I think the people who don't want the information are the exception. I I really do. Um, In family medicine, there are so few opportunities to have instant gratification and this, oddly enough, is one of those moments where if you can sit down with a patient and a family and give them a clearer picture of what's to come in a time that seems so dark and confusing, 
and also give them a sense of control. Again, so reframing that hope, right? Or as you guys talked about, walking two roads, right? You know, it's it's the ability to massage those conversations to give patients clarity uh, and to give them a sense of control with that knowledge that is like you can just see the shoulders drop in the room, right? In a good way. Um, size of relief, you know, just thank you. The, the amount of times that you are thanked for giving what most people would label as bad news, right? Or difficult to hear, um, a difficult to hear prognosis is, it happens more than, than you probably can appreciate. Um, but it has to be done well. And I think people have to have the confidence, not just the knowledge, but the confidence to be able to have these conversations with patients. And, uh, and they are very well received if they're done well. How do you get a sense or how do you size up your patients and families in terms of how much information they want and when? Mm-hmm. So it's usually starts with me giving an explanation around what I can offer moving forward. And I've already talked about this a little bit. So the three things that I offer my patients um, is to help them understand their illness better. And that could be, you know, anything from what is this diagnosis to what does it look like moving forward? What symptoms might happen to me? You know, will I experience pain? Um, Anything, anything at all. And And I make it very clear that if I don't know the answer, most of the time I can find out. And usually that requires collaboration with some of the specialists that are treating them. You know, if, if I've got a patient, uh, for example, with a more rare cancer, and particularly if they're young, right, you know, that would be a time where I would pick up the phone and I would, I would talk to the specialist and ask for some of that population level data. You know, what, what do we know about prognosis and things like that? So illness understanding, I ask about symptoms and, you know, that's a place that I can help them. Um, And that's, you know, beyond physical symptoms, it's also psychological, spiritual, you know, existential distress that they might feel. And then I say, you know, I can help you plan for the future too. And you probably have some fears around, you know, what's to come, knowing that your heart's not doing so well or your lungs aren't doing so well. And that's something I actually have a lot of experience in doing. So, you know, those are the three avenues that I tell patients that I can help them with. And then I ask them where they would like to start, you know, and, and if patients say, you know, I have not pooped for days, you know, that's them agenda setting, right? But I can always go back to the other two and say, you know, I did mention some other things today. You know, do you feel like that's a topic that you'd want to address today or should we bring you back, you know, to have that conversation in in a few weeks? Because I think all of them are important. And, you know, as when prognosis and things like that come up as well, you know, I make it very clear to patients that I have, I've, I've got a fair bit of information that I can always provide about that stuff too, but I won't share anything with a patient unless I have permission to do so. Because I think people have their backup, 
right? Until they hear that. They're afraid that I'm going to, you know, drop something on them and it's going to be shocking. Um, so that's a, that's another strategy that I use. And I also recognize that patients and their caregivers have very different levels of information that they want to hear, you know, and it can go both ways. You can have a patient who was the engineer and comes in with flow sheets about everything that's happened in the last week. And they want to know what's to come and they've got their funeral planned and, you know, that's just who they are. And you, and they have loved ones who can't really wrap their head around yet that they're going to lose their mom or their dad. Right. And then you have patients who, um, you know, they, they find it a bit anxiety provoking to do beyond the day by day right now. And there are ways of massaging those conversations too, right? You know, we've got a lot of evidence that supports now in, in the world of palliative care that when people plan ahead and they have these difficult conversations up front, they actually live longer and they live better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's something else that we can share. But if I've got a patient that, you know, doesn't want all the facts, but we know that they have a caregiver who is intimately involved and is going to be ever more so now responsible for, you know, their care in the future. You ask permission to have those conversations with family members and and frank ones at that. And if you have that permission, then that goes a long way too, is initially starting Mm -hmm. to have conversations with caregivers as opposed to the patient right up front. Again, as long as you have permission. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you don't necessarily wait for patients and families to ask you questions. You set it up right from the get-go that this is how I can be helpful throughout this illness. Mm -hmm. There are these three areas that are fair game. Um, Where do you want to start? What's most important to you today? And it sounds like you reintroduce those three areas as you're following them um, proactively. They don't just drift off into the abyss and you never see them again. Sounds like this is like something you chip away at over uh, regular visits. Yeah, and you have to. Uh, You hit on an important point there, Sammy, and that is the fact that it actually takes a lot of work to stay in the lives of these patients, uh, more than I think people appreciate. In a busy world of family medicine, where, you know, many docs out there have well over a thousand patients, and you think of the administrative burden that goes into primary care, and, you know, I can really only speak to family medicine, Um it's kind of, it, it's easy, frankly, it's easy to say, oh, the cardiologist has this, you know, the respirologist has this, you know, and I'm not talking about those important conversations. I'm more just talking about the medical management and, um, you know, that aspect of care. Uh, the starkest example is probably oncology, right? You, you think of a, a serious diagnosis of cancer and the burden of care that goes in. Uh, for patients, right? The chemotherapy appointments, the radiation planning appointments, the radiation appointments, the follow-up appointments, the blood work. Um, you know, I'm I'm just another visit. But if you can sell yourself up front to people and families and say, you know, I'm your quarterback, you know, I, these are all the things that I can do for you. 
very often we find patients in these busyologist worlds who come out and say, I have no idea what happened, you know, or um, I don't really know what's coming next. Or they said they'd call me, you know, or there's an appointment for this, I think. Um, I'm not really sure what he said about that treatment, you know, and it's not anybody's fault. It's just the nature of this super challenging time, right? This emotionally laden time, uh, people are overwhelmed. And so if they know that I think it's my responsibility to help them navigate that, they'll pick up the phone and they'll call me. If they know that I can treat their pain, whether it be related to their disease or the treatments of their disease, they'll call me, right? And we'll have regularly scheduled appointments. And if they start to have fears around things not going in the direction that we had all hoped that they would go, you know, and often that starts with a cure or it starts with somebody doing better longer, then they'll call me because they know that I, I opened up the door for those conversations. And don't get me wrong, there are times where I have to be more aggressive, right? I just, I'm not sure that the patient is getting it, or there's conflicting information that they're getting from, you know, the various people that are involved in their care. And and I know, quite frankly, where this is headed. You know, I, I will be more aggressive in my approach. But we're talking about the ideal of early upstream care and how we're sprinkling it in. So it sounds like the other thing you have to offer your patients and families is um, untangling and decoding and making meaning of what they're hearing at all the other appointments. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I love how you said that, that you try to make it attractive for them to come back to see you because it's so much sexier to go see the specialist. Um, mm-hmm. But you are their quarterback. And um and so you take a very proactive, intentional approach um, from the get-go, knowing that your patients could get sucked into the vortex of someone else's care and then probably thrown back to you at the very end mm-hmm. um, after years of not seeing them. It, I can imagine it's much harder when you're in that position, when the baton gets um, passed back to you yeah. after years of not seeing your patient. Is that when people start thinking like this care is too difficult, it's too complicated, it takes too much time, um, I'm scared of providing palliative care? Do you think that early intervention, like you're talking about, um, helps? For sure it does, because one of the one of the best benefits about being in family medicine is that you have a bigger picture of a patient than most other clinicians, right? You are, it is family medicine. You have ideally been following them and their family for years. You know their home situation. You know their, um, their work situation. You know their social situation. You know how financially well off they are. You know, you have, you have insight into all of these determinants of health. And so it's so often that those things are not considered in the acceptance or rejection of things that are offered, right? I, I refer to it sort of as the, the hammer and nail in medicine. You know, if you go to a specialist, well, if they see a nail, they're going to use their hammer, right? I mean, it's what they've been trained to do. Uh, having that much larger context 
And to be able to say to a patient, like, you remember me talking about being aggressive earlier, you know, this isn't necessarily aggressive. It's an ability to say, you know, I understand you accepted this treatment, um, but, you know, let's put it into the context, again, of those goals and values, the thing that are important to the patient. You know, how do you think it's going to influence your ability to spend time with your kids, for example? Right. You know, you've talked about the burden of going in for these appointments. You know, you're having trouble getting out of bed now. Um, you know, you, you're still wanting to have some energy to be able to pursue things like being in your garden. Um, you know, how, how does this sit with you knowing what you're signing up for now? Um, again, asking permission to share some of my own insights as to how helpful I think a treatment will or won't be, especially as we head later into the trajectory. And Sammy, so I'm circling back to your question in that if we can do this, if we can walk the journey with our patients with this context in mind and having them consider their own context and making these decisions we're not in that final crisis in the end, right? People aren't doing futile or harmful therapies and treatments until the end. And we're left to pick up the pieces because suddenly they can't go into the hospital anymore. Clearly that um, would result in someone paving their own individual way through an illness and therefore probably feeling like they are themselves the whole way through, as opposed to getting sucked into what we call usual care or standard care. So the one I just picked up on is that you, by knowing your patient better than any other health care provider, you can offer them uh, like context setting, not just with the illness, like this is the illness, but this is you. And you can help them through difficult decisions and reflect back to them who you know they are uh, so that, again, they can end up with an illness experience that feels most like them. So much of what you're saying, Erin, connects so effortlessly with our seven skills. I mean, for instance, customize your order and zooming out. Um, and it's clear to me that from how you approach these conversations over time, that you can have a very lasting impact on the patient and family journey. And you're validating what we had hoped would happen for patients and families, and more importantly, role modeling how to do this as a provider. Yeah, it's, it's definitely very rewarding work. And you're right, in that Customize Your Order podcast that you guys did, it struck me so much when you said that as people progress through their journey, they lose themselves, right? And who they are because they come about or they become about the medical care that they're getting and the next step and the next treatment. And that context is so important. Uh, and it gives people the confidence to say yes or no to things, uh, which is crucial. And it, it gives us the confidence as well to make recommendations. I mean, we've all been that medical student or resident that was asked to go down to eMERGE and get the code status on the patient. Right. And without any context, it just becomes another menu item. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's so easy to it's so easy to. Oh, I'll just leave it at that.
Is there ever a time that you say to your patients or families, I'm really sorry, I don't have a crystal ball? Yeah, (laughs) I I do, Sammy. Um, And I've heard you say it a million times. I use it it, the context for me is I don't have a crystal ball and that I can predict to you the date, the time and the way, (laughs) you know, that this is going to happen. But then I, I, I follow that up with, but I have a lot of information that will help you understand what and when to expect moving forward. And I'll get an even better sense as I continue to follow you around, you know, what that is going to be like, you know, and, you know, we can talk, uh, you know, we can talk about population statistics and, you know, prognosis and things like that. And that's something that our oncology colleagues are very good at. Um, I can add another layer by truly appreciating, I think, some of their, their comorbidities and their social context. You know, we talk about rate, rate of change in function quite often with patients and things like that. Um, but yeah, I do use the crystal ball phrase. It's just not as I, I think some people use it as, well, we don't have a crystal ball, so I'm not even going there. Right. And Mm -hmm. that is, that is not okay. Um, but I, I do give some caveats so patients don't, um, hold on to, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't bookend it as we learn, right. Three to six months. Mm -hmm. That's not helpful to Mm -hmm. anybody. So I think when you get to that three months, you're uh, everybody's panicking. And when you get to the six months, you're sort of questioning what everybody's told you about prognosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's my context for the crystal ball. But mm-hmm. you, know, you're, you and I have had many discussions uh, over time around the crystal ball and how much we actually do know about what mm-hmm. people's illness trajectories look like. We see it every day in the work that we do. So just because I don't have a crystal ball and can predict it down to the minute, the day, the time, the second, the room that you're in, um, even though those things become much more clear as things progress, I can paint a pretty good picture um, and one with, you know, as much frankness and honesty as I'm allowed to divulge to a patient. And as I said to you earlier, CN, most people are yearning for that information because Mm -hmm. it is so unclear what to expect and it's a time of uncertainty and uh and concern okay so i have i have a question for you because you've talked so beautifully of how you've woven in this palliative care approach into right you, you know all the way through it upstream um do you ever use the word palliative care with your patients like do you do you use that word? And if you if they if you introduce it, do they have a different reaction, or do you just sort of take away that language and just use maybe different language that is more accessible to them? Yeah. Um. So the short answer is yes. I use it all the time. Um. I personally am very comfortable with that word, and I know how to follow it up with an explanation of what I do. Right. And, and we've talked about that already a bit today. Right. Focus on quality of life and those three things that I tell people I can offer them. I mean, for the most part, it's very well received. There are contexts. You know, I take on a lot of what we call orphan patients in the community. And it's a, a horrible label that we give to people without family doctors. But most people know what I mean when I say that that are in medicine. 
And um, these are people that often have not been in the medical system at all. They're diagnosed most of the time very late with some form of cancer. This is my experience. Um, And so there are apprehensions about the medical world because this is their first time in it maybe ever or in decades. And so I'm a little more cautious around people that I don't know in using that word because I think everybody on this podcast and certainly many people who will probably listen to it are aware of the antibodies that many people have developed to the P word. You told me once that um, you naturally, you realize that you naturally tell people right from the get-go that you're in it with them. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? You know, it sounds a lot like what you just said. <laughs> oh, that's it? Well, it's, you know, like you said, I kind of have to sell myself because it is hard work to stay linked with these patients on what I feel to be a regular enough basis to provide good care and to stay on top of things. And there's a lot of work that needs to happen up front for self-management, right? To give these patients and families the skills to continue to manage things moving forward. It can't all be on me. How do you deal with those transitions, Erin, from like the early, middle, late terminal stage of an illness? How do you, how do you change what do you, how do you change what you do? How do you invite people to understand those transitions better? How do you know when they're happening? <laughs> I'm asking you a million questions, but mm-hmm. how do you deal with transitions? Well, you know, just listening to you talk, I'm, I'm not sure that this is answering your question right off the bat, but a lot of our chronic progressive illnesses um, are caught late, right? So you actually lose a lot of lung and renal and heart function before you become symptomatic. So people are typically, like, it's pretty rare, I think, reflecting on this for the first time, to catch people as early as we think we would, right? I I think a lot of people are already in the middle, right? They've had, you know, one too Mm. many pneumonias, this year. And we know that they have a 20 or a 30 pack year history of smoking. And so we order some investigations and we diagnose COPD, right? So, so something's already changed and that might actually even just lead to the diagnosis and to illness understanding upstream, right? This is, this is what it looks like. Um, You know, I, I think with future transitions, a lot of it is around function, Right. So we do our best to wrap resources around our patients, uh, because as we know, it's it's a very limited amount of time that they're spending with us as clinicians. Right. It's their community where they need to function and they need to do well. So whether that be pulmonary rehab or, um, you know, other types of programs that can help with their function and their wellness, Uh, So those are things that we do upstream. And again, with regular follow-up, because all of these patients are on medications that we need to prescribe, right? So that's another strategy is being able to say, 
you know, no, I'm not going to give Mr. Smith a year's prescription of his antihypertensive or his beta blocker um, because I know that I need to check in with him at least once every three months. So, you know, that's another way that we can monitor our patients and certainly lay eyes on them, which is crucial, right, is actually seeing them and seeing changes Mm. in them and, you know, asking that key question, have you noticed a change in yourself? What are the things that you're not able to do? And if that is bathing, you know, we're getting a bit further on, they're having more trouble with stability in the shower, or, you know, they're not actually tending to anything outside anymore, you know, starting to offer more resources. And then, I mean, really, the one of the biggest things that we can do in primary care is when patients find it too challenging to come to us is to start going to them and to do home visits uh, because the intel that you get from walking in that front door is, you know, yeah, it takes a while to drive to the house and it takes a while to drive back, but man, is it insightful. You get way more information just from walking through that door than you do a conversation in your office. So, you know, it's one way of arguably saying that you save time in the long run. Um, but those would be, Sammy, I hope that answers your questions. Those are ways that I I try to help with transitions. Other transitions I can think of are, you know, when the ologist says there isn't a whole lot that I can offer you anymore. There's actually, there's many beautiful relationships that do form with the ologists out there and the patients. They become very attached to their cardiologist and their respirologist and have a ton of trust and faith in the care that they've received. But when it becomes too difficult, you know, recognizing that um, you're kind of having to fill that void as well sometimes. Erin, when you're collecting information at these points of change, usually a functional change, and you're asking people if they notice the change, do you at the same time as pointing out the change and wrapping resources, like you said, around them, do you also try to help make meaning about the change? In relation to the disease or the illness, you mean? Yeah, because a lot of people, a lot of physicians will say, well, I had that conversation. I told them this, that, and the other thing. Um, We interviewed someone who said that she was getting a ton of information from her specialist, but she never understood what it meant. Um, And so sometimes I think doctors and nurses say, I had that conversation. I told them we were going to do a feeding tube, or I told them we weren't going to do a feeding tube, or I told them they're going to get a uh, blood work to have a uh, a transfusion, or I told them I'm increasing their Lasix. Yeah. But a lot of people say, I didn't understand. What it so, actually so, meant. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was wrong for me to think that that was implied. You know, the change, of course, comes with an explanation. And, you know, as I had said earlier, I think it is the invitation for them to give me their ideas first as to what's happening because often they're bang on right and and it takes the delivering bad news out of it right you kind of you you use that what is it the wish worry wonder you know you kind of say you know I'm worried that that's actually the case too I I I think that this is your heart getting worse I think we're in another stage of this illness Erin can I ask you another question speaking of resources and illness trajectories 
These apply to the families too. How do you use families or the caregivers or the person's inner crew, right? Their non-professional team. How do you use them as a resource? I think this is an area where creativity is the limit. <laughs> if you know you you can be as creative as a family will allow you to be um, within reason, of course. This is another area where upstream is super important because you know in this era of COVID, um, one of the ways that I have significantly changed my discussions with families who are approaching end of life in particular, um, maybe a little bit more upstream than that, is this care is on you more than ever. And I think it is important for them to know that not in the final hour, that is a lot to wrap your head around. Uh, that, you know, you are going to be the one that is helping with some of the personal care uh, because of the limited resources that are available right now. You know, you will be moving your loved one in the bed. You will be emptying the commode. You will be giving some injections with proper training. Um, somebody does need to be in the home all the time. Um, and so these are, you know painting a picture and emphasizing how important it is to plan ahead. I like how you chip away at this, this that feels like it would be a mountain for a lot of um, physicians and clinicians um, that takes up so much time and can derail any one day of a person's practice. Um, but your approach is, yeah, it's like chip, chip, chipping away, um, you know, slow and steady right from the get-go. So that, um, and I love how you offer things to patients and families that make them want to stay connected with you so that you're not in a position at some downstream point in the person's care, scrambling in a major way to backtrack um, when that's sometimes impossible. Yeah. So I like this idea of slow and steady wins the race. Yeah, that have have been, you know, completely resistant to wanting to know where this is going and, and the detail, like the writings on the wall, they know it, the family know it, I know it, and they tend to go into, you know, the chipping happens at beaver pace, <laughs> you know, at the end. <laughs> you know, we're, we're lucky to, to have the skills and the language to be able to do that very quickly. Right. Whereas you think mm -hmm. about people who are not used to having these conversations being thrown into this crisis, which happens all the time, and not even having the language or the skills to be able to address it, which I think is why we see a lot of hesitancy in primary care around, oh, here's your patient back. Um, you know, mm -hmm. that's that's a bit of a nightmare. So so there's lots of different trajectories, but if we have the skills, I think we can adapt to the heavy up front or the heavy at the end and the ideal of <laughs> sprinkling it in throughout. But it, so there's the chipping away, yeah. or there's the um, beaver style, or yeah. woodpecker yeah. style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's true. Some people, they don't want to know, don't want to know, don't want to know, don't want to know, no matter how many times you invite them. And, um, but then there's this moment, yeah. this shift that happens. And you're right. It's usually when 
it is so obvious. Yeah. Um, and suddenly they want the woodpecker style, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, the rapid fire information sharing. Yeah. And that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Well, and Sammy, adding on to your point around saying to patients, look, this is, this is what it looks like if we don't plan, right. And painting that picture, um, you know, an add on to that or a different way of doing it is, you know, have you got anything left to do? You know, regardless, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need to talk about, we don't need to bring out the crystal ball. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But what have you got left to do? Right. And uh, I think based on what they're hoping for, you know, it's, uh, you know, oh, I, I have yet to go on a cruise and we've got it booked in five years and, you know, I, that's going to be a clear dilemma. Um, and so mm-hmm. obviously you have to navigate that in appropriate ways, but framing for patients as well, that without having some more information, you may miss out on some of the things that you still want to do and that are really important to you. And my job is to to keep you living as well as you can in doing those things. So the more we can communicate mm-hmm. around this stuff, the more you hopefully can do what, what you have left to do. Could I just follow up? I was just going to build on that because I wonder if there are people listening going, why would I want to do all this extra work? Mm. So what's the reward for you to, what's, what's the reward for you? Like, why do you do it? Because it makes such a huge difference in people's lives. You know, and it's not just the one patient sitting in front of you. It is anybody who's willing and able to sit in the room, whether it be my room or, or being in their home. I mean, family medicine is rewarding for a lot of ways, but it beats you down in a lot of ways too. You know, it's, uh, it is really tough work. Um, it is very busy work. And so at the end of the day, this is one way that I know that I am making a difference in people's lives. Erin, thank you so much for joining us uh, on this podcast. You have helped us understand um, right from the trenches what it's like to be in the shoes of a family doctor uh, caring for patients over a serious illness. Uh, You have revealed lots of tips and we have eaten up every word you've said. Thank you so much. So thank you. And this was fun. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.